All right, well, uh, over the past few weeks, we've been uh, taking some time to talk church, actually, and uh, I want to say uh, thanks for being patient with me as we've been doing this. Uh, you've been patient with me because uh, we've taken a little break from our study of the Gospel of Luke to think about the church, and uh, if you're like me, I like to look at one book of the Bible week after week, and so I always feel a little funny when we do something like this, uh, but I'm new to Cornerstone, and so I want to kind of fast forward some of our conversations about what we're doing and uh, why we're doing it and where we're headed as a church, and, and I want to do that by looking at a number of different passages and uh, thinking about what kind of church exactly does God want us to be? What kind of church does God want us to be? And uh, specifically, you know, we've been talking about something that we uh, have been calling gospel culture. We want to have a gospel culture. And so uh, gospel, obviously, is what we be believe in. It's this great big message about Jesus and what God has done through Jesus. It's the core of our doctrinal, doctrinal statement. It's what's really important to us as a church. And culture just means way of life, basically. It's the things we talk about, the things we think about, the things we feel that just seem uh, normal to us. And of course, uh, you know you don't find the word culture in the Bible exactly, but biblical words for culture would be words like a walk or way of life or lifestyle or ways inherited from your forefathers. They're all there. And so we've all got things that we do that uh, seem normal because we've been doing them for so long. They're habits, and we barely need to to think about them. They almost feel like it's just how it is. They're the way you do things. And that's partly because that's just the way most people around you do things. That are, of course, not just the way people do things everywhere. They're culture. And that's not really controversial, I don't think, for, for us. We know uh, one of the advantages, probably, of growing up in a place where there are people from many different places is that you realize that there are things that seem normal to others that don't seem normal to you. So if you grow up in a place where everybody is uh, from the same background, uh, sometimes you think that's the only way it is until you meet people from somewhere else and you're like, oh, wow, uh, there's a, I guess there's a different option. Uh, for me, one of the funnier examples of that is standing in lines in Africa. I, I always thought... I remember uh, one time being in Swaziland, and I always thought that everybody in a line was always looking for the faster line. Um, I just thought that was part of actually human nature until I was standing there in a grocery store in Swaziland with some of my friends and realized, uh, nope, I'm pretty much the only one here uh, looking around <laughs> trying to find a faster line. And that's obviously not right or wrong, unless I'm the one who's wrong, being impatient. Uh, but of course, culture's not just always neutral, and, and that's the thing. And that's maybe the disadvantage of growing up where we grow up, where we grew up, uh, because we understand that there is such a thing as culture, uh, but like I used to say, it's American culture not to question culture. So I would uh, tell my friends in Africa, when Americans come over for dinner, you can do anything, and just say that it's your culture. And uh, that will be fine because our culture is to never question culture. But as Christians, we know that we actually do have to question culture because we don't just do things. Uh, we do things based on what we believe. Um, and of course, we don't always think about how the way we do things is connected to what we believe because we've been doing it for so long, it just feels normal and everybody else around us is doing it. Uh, but if you trace that action or thought back, you, you find it's connected to a way of looking at the world. And that's part of why, as Christians, it's so important that we take time to go back and connect how we act, how we think, how we feel to what we believe. This is part of how sanctification is supposed to work. So we grew up being trained in a certain way of living that was based on a certain view of the world. 
I was listening even to a podcast, a story podcast with my uh, Lincoln yesterday, one of my sons, and realizing how much of that podcast was not actually facts. It was uh, teaching. It was teaching us to think a certain way about the world. But then we became Christians, and we have a whole new way of looking at the world. The gospel is the real way of looking at the world, how God says things work. But we still have all these habits that seem normal. And we're living in a world where they go unchallenged, honestly, because it's our culture. And so we need to deliberately think about what we believe and how it connects to how we think and what we feel and what we prioritize and what we value so we can have a new culture, a gospel culture. In other words, we hear the gospel and the gospel changes what we believe about how life works. And then these new beliefs about how life works should change the way we live, our, our culture, our habits over time as a church, what is normal. But I'm telling you, that takes work. That takes work. I don't know if you've ever lived in another culture and uh, tried to live according to that culture. So like you move to another culture and you try to change your culture. In some ways, that's marriage, really, but uh, changing your culture, uh, not just doing something different for one day, but changing your culture is difficult, really difficult. Even something as simple as, like, new clothes. In Africa, people would sometimes give me traditional shirts to wear and things because they wanted me to fit in. And it was kind of fun at first to wear that shirt, but you know what? It felt weird. And even as I was sitting there with other people who were all wearing those shirts, I would feel different because it didn't feel normal. And so you really need to know why you're doing what you're doing if your culture is going to change. If you're not just going to try to fit in for a day or two, but if your, your, your habits are actually going to change, you need to know how it's supposed to change and you need to know why. You need a big why because making a lot of those changes is going to be uncomfortable. Even for us as a church, there are going to be things that we need to do that are going to be uncomfortable if we're going to have a gospel culture. We, and so we really need to know why we're doing what we're doing, because a lot of what we're going to be doing isn't going to feel normal. Like, for example, we talked about us wanting to be a place where people express their needs and aren't afraid to, to fail. And you remember that was sermon number one, a needy church. That's not normal, especially for us as Americans. How hard is it for us to say, I need your help? Like, I really need your help. It's so hard. And so we had to think about what we believe about salvation, the doctrine of salvation, and the difference that should make. And, and then, of course, we talked about being a place where we're hopeful that others can change. First of all, where we believe that it's important people change, and we're actually hopeful that they can change, and that's connected to what we believe about salvation as well, because if we believe in the kind of salvation that we say we believe in, then we can't just be cynical and hopeless. We have to be a hopeful church, not naive, because we know about sin, and we know actually if a person's unconverted, they're, they're dead, spiritually dead, but hopeful, because we know about Jesus, and we even know about what God has done in our lives through Jesus. And then we talked about wanting to be a place where people aren't trying to justify themselves anymore, uh, but instead are boasting completely in what Jesus has done, which is honestly so radical. Like, if you want to pick one thing that would change everything about a group of people, because self-justification goes so deep. We have been self-justifying pretty much from the time we were a baby. And then we've been taught all of these things that are supposed to make us matter that don't really matter. And so you take that away and it feels so strange. I sometimes think we, don't, we wouldn't even know what to do with ourselves if we stopped trying to justify ourselves. That's been our pattern for so long, what, what drives us, which is why we talked about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. 
And, and then last week and this week, we are, we're talking about being a place where people are committed to having real deep relationships with one another, where it's not just come and listen to the pastor or come and be a spectator, but instead, if I'm a member, I'm a minister. We're called to ministry. No excuses. We're all called to ministry, using our gifts in the context of the local church. And so as a result, then, of course, we now think of church as a priority and our relationship with the church as more than just showing up on Sundays or an event even. But instead, we're seeking to build new friendships with people that are different than us, and we feel a responsibility to those relationships, whether the people are easy for us to get along with or not. We're going to seek to live our lives in community, not on our own anymore, which is, again, really strange for an American or uh, for at least many Americans because we make so many choices on the basis of what's comfortable. That's like almost absolute for us. And so something being uncomfortable is almost like an acceptable reason for not doing anything. And relationships generally aren't comfortable, especially long-term relationships. And so prioritizing biblical relationships even over comfort can seem so strange. That's like a different culture. It's going to take a lot of work for us. It's going to take effort. It's going to mean spending time with people, going out of your way to, to get to know people. It's going to mean awkward conversations where you don't know what to say to people. It's going to mean opening up your life to people, your home. In fact, this is one of the reasons why we're starting life groups this year at the church. We want a little bit of unrushed time with one another. And so we're asking you, like Francis said, to be part of a group where you have meals with one another a couple times a month, and you just try to develop friendships with one another, and that's going to be for sure at times difficult as your kids are crying or you're, you're single and you're sitting there with all these couples or whatever, and maybe it's not always going to be right up there on the top of your list of amazing things to do on a certain night of the week. And so I want to take some time and remind you why. Uh, in other words, why you need to be committed to developing that kind of culture here at Cornerstone, even when it doesn't feel comfortable or normal. And to do that, I want us to go back and think about what we are as a church. So a little ecclesi ecclesiology. And of course, we started last week and we talked about Paul's vision for the church and the role you play in that vision from Ephesians 4. And I, I hope that was helpful. But uh, I want to even get more simple this week if I can and just think a little bit about one of the most important pictures that the Bible gives us of the church. We're trying to be a church. What is the Bible's picture of what it means to be a church? And to do that we're going to look at a number of different passages actually. So you're going to have to kind of work to keep up but you can be thankful it's it's just these passages because the New Testament is filled with so many pictures of the church. There's like 96 different pictures of what the church is in the New Testament. So we could be here all day. But we're instead going to look just primarily at one of the most common ways the Bible pictures the church. And that is the church as family. The church is family. And you can kind of circle in your minds that word is I remember reading a book a few years ago, When the Church Was Family. That was the, the title. And the author used a word I'd never heard of before to describe one of the things God did in our salvation. He called it familification. I can barely say it, obviously. But he writes, Just as we are justified with respect to God the Father upon salvation, so also are we familified with respect to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this familification is no less a positional reality than justification. In other words, it is an objective fact. You are justified and you have been familified. And there are lots of different proofs of that throughout the New Testament. I'm talking about why more than just showing up at a church but working at pursuing relationships needs to be our culture. And the fundamental reason is because the Bible's picture of the church is that of a family. And there are lots of proofs of that. So, so one is the way in which Paul and other writers of the New Testament describe us as Christians. Over and over and over, 
brother, sister, brother, sister. I think it's used like 271 times in the New Testament. And we're so used to that. I was even uh, reading Philemon uh, this morning, and Philemon, you don't say chapter 1 because it's just one chapter, but Philemon verses 1 and 2, three or four times in just the first three verses, he describes other believers as brothers and, and sisters. And it's easy to almost read over that, but if you slow down, you realize there are actually different ways they could have talked about us as Christians. For example, uh, Paul could have said, and the other writers of the New Testament talking about Christians could have said friends, and friends are great. But in the New Testament, the most frequent description of the church is the family. Brother, brother, brother. And sometimes we miss that because we hear brother and we don't think much of it because maybe our own families aren't close or we've gone to church for so long and people call us brother or sister and it almost feels like a nickname or something or something you say when you've forgotten someone's name, uh, like, hey, brother. Um, I, I sometimes say this so often. I, don't, I say it to people that I'm not even sure are Christians. I'll, I'll, you know, if I meet them for the first time, I, I'm not even thinking. I'll be like, hey, brother. So clearly, I'm not always using it in a significant way, but the New Testament writers were. Being a brother was a big deal. In fact, in Paul's day, brothers, uh, siblings, brothers and sisters, were more closely related to you in, in the world around Paul than even your husband or wife. Because when you got married, it was thought of as like a contractual thing. It was, it was good for the, the group, but brothers and sisters shared their father's blood. I remember in Africa, one time, I'm talking a lot about Africa today, but one time I introduced uh, someone as a close friend, and he was so offended because he said, I thought we were more than friends. We're brothers. And that was closer to him. And, of course, that's more the way it was in the New Testament as well. If you want to talk about close, intimate relationships and you wanted an illustration in Paul's day to help someone see this is huge, in that culture, in Paul's day, you would have probably talked about brothers and sisters even sometimes before you would have talked about husband and wife. But it's not just a common illustration in the New Testament of our relationship as believers. It's actually a reality, and that's kind of the point. Matthew chapter 23, uh, verse 8. Jesus says, you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. He doesn't say students. He says brothers. We are family now. And of course, that wasn't true before God saved us. That's the thing. We, we spent our life, Titus chapter uh, 2, we spent our life, Titus chapter 3, we spent our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So we're not just naturally brothers and sisters, obviously, but when God saves us, Ephesians chapter 1, what he does is he adopts us into our family, into his family, and because he adopts us, we can call him father. We're part of the family of God, Ephesians 2.19. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, the family of God, and because we've been adopted by God and now relate to him as father, we have new adopted brothers and sisters as well and relate to each other as family, which is a, a privilege, but it's also a responsibility, which is why there are like 58 commands in the New Testament to help us know how to live as family. That's why Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says, we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love and to give preference to one another in honor. And why Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially, we do to get good to everyone, but we're especially passionate about doing good to other believers because we're family. We're part of the same family. This is our family, the church. And we know this idea of family, it, the church as a family, is important because when Paul teaches us about how to relate to different people in the church, he uses the family as an illustration. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, you remember this, he tells Timothy, don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, 
older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. In other words, this is a reality that is supposed to influence the way we relate to one another. And this family relationship we have as believers is why later on in 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul sets up a plan to help the church take care of widows who don't have immediate physical family to take care of them. And he's saying the church has now a family-like responsibility to these people, to these women. In fact, this idea of the church as family is so fundamental that when Paul talks about the requirements for elders, he explains in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, that an elder must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Why? Do you remember the reason? For, this is the reason, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? And so the reason Paul lays managing your family well down as a requirement for elders is because in his mind there is a connection between the skills that are necessary for leading a family and the skills that are necessary for leading a church. So it's like if I said, make sure a man is a good farmer if you're going to hire him as a good computer programmer. You would say, uh, what is the connection? Because I would only say that if there was a connection. And so obviously in Paul's mind, there is a connection between leading the church and leading the family. Which is why when the writers of the New Testament talk about our responsibilities to one another, they use this idea of the church as a family as the basis for their exhortations. And so sometimes they say it very directly, like we said, Romans chapter 12, verse 10. It's a command. Love one another with brotherly affection. In, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, Paul says, it is God who teaches us to act this way towards one another. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you have been taught by God to love one another, for that's indeed what you were doing to all the brothers through Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. In Hebrews 13.1, the writer urges us, pursue this kind of love. Let brotherly love continue. In 1 Peter chapter 1.22, Peter tells us this is part of why God saved us, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. And in 2 Peter 1.7, he tells us we need to work at it. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. In 1 John 3.10, he tells us that it's this kind of family-like love that distinguishes the children of God from the children of the devil. By this it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his, his brother, his fellow Christian. And in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, he connects our love for each other as family with our love for God. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. And those are all so direct, straightforward. And yet you keep looking and you see that there are also all these other commands throughout the New Testament that evidence our family-type relationship as well. For example, there's an expectation that we'll look out for each other when we're struggling financially. 1 John 3, 16 and 17. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And even perhaps more importantly, there's an expectation that we'll look out for each other spiritually. When someone's in sin, we don't just abandon him or attack him or fire him. We look to help him. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. James 5, my brothers, my, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James assumes somebody from our family is going to wander away and somebody in the family is going to go after and what's more, we're not just supposed to correct each other, we're supposed to care for one another. Like deeply, you start reading through the New Testament and you're struck 
by how deeply these believers cared for one another. I, I sometimes, I've told you, get embarrassed by the way Paul talks to other believers. Listen to Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Verse 8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Or there's the way he speaks to the Corinthian believers. He says, 2 Corinthians 11, 28 and 29, there is daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. And this is like the climax of all his suffering. You remember all these things, and now he's bringing this one up as like the climactic one. It's not being like shipwrecked or like thrown in prison. It's this daily pressure for the churches. Who's weak without my being weak? Who's led into sin without my intense concern? And that's just a, a few verses, but it reflects the way Paul felt about the church and the way the church felt about him. If you think about what happened in Acts chapter 20, verse 36, where Paul is telling the Ephesians that he wasn't going to see them any longer. And Luke says, there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, which is so deep. You know, he says weeping. Much weeping. I think that helps us see how tightly connected these relationships are supposed to be within the church. Because look, we're not just students sitting next to each other. We're not just co-workers showing up to do a job together. This kind of care, this kind of pursuit, this kind of affection, it makes sense because we're family. And, and, and so many of the commands to the church in the New Testament are challenges to live like it which is kind of the hard part, I think. The truth is we're family as believers. That's num number one. We're not making that up. We see it everywhere. But we, we have to think about it, actually, living as family, because uh, for a lot of reasons, but one reason is because it's not really always our culture. I mean, it's, it's hard for everyone, no matter where you grew up, to love others as family. But it's maybe especially hard for those of us who have been trained to, like, think of our lives so individualistically. And I know I'm just sort of talking here, but I look at the description of the church and these commands, and I think it is hard sometimes for us to even appreciate what Paul's saying. It's kind of like there are times... Um, Again, this is a big Africa day, but there are times, sorry, but there are times when I was uh, in Africa speaking in a conversation to someone, and the person next to me uh, would be like, do you know what he's saying? And I would be like, well, he's speaking English, so yeah. But then he would tell me what he meant, and I would be like, wow, I didn't get that at all, <laughs> because it's just so different. And uh, sometimes I think reading the New Testament, we read the verses and we don't always feel the impact because it's, it's just so different. I remember listening to a uh, professor trying to describe the difference between how many in Paul's day thought about themselves and the way many in our day do. And he described the difference as being that in Paul's day, the culture would put the group first. So they even have a term for that. They call that strong group culture. And uh, so there are places where people come from what you would call a stronger group culture. And I would see that when especially people from Central Africa would be part of our church and we would talk to them about getting married and the man would have to pay something called labola. And that's just the price the husband would pay for the family, pay the family of his wife to be able to marry her. And it used to be something neat and I'm sure sometimes it still is because it was a way of showing honor to the family for bringing the daughter up. Uh, but nowadays, in some families, it became more like a retirement fund. And the, and the wife's uh, family was ask, asking for these like extreme sums. And so in the beginning, sometimes when I would talk to one of my friends who was struggling to pay an unreasonable payment request, I was tempted to advise him to get married without paying the labola. And you know, when I would bring that up, even like as a joke, it was basically impossible for them to comprehend, like impossible, because that would be such a sign of disrespect to the community. They couldn't even think of doing it. There was such a connection to the bigger community in their mind. I was actually talking to someone recently who's being sued by his mother's brothers because his father hasn't paid Labola 
So it's not even his Labola, it's his father's. And there's just such a strong tie. And of course, most of us are very different. We're from what you would call, many of us, a weak group culture, which is the opposite. And what it means is that we as individuals take priority in our thinking and lives, and not so much the group. And so as we think about our relationships to the institutions around us, we think of ourselves as being at the center. And what matters most is what we want and what's good for us. And so when we think about things, we usually think about what it can do for us personally. And, and we would put our personal needs and our personal interests above that of the group or institution or even sometimes family. And of course, there are exceptions. But when we think about ourselves, we usually start with I and don't think that much in terms of we, which can be an obstacle uh, in the Christian life because, for one thing, it impacts the way we read the Bible. Many of us read the Bible very individualistically, and so we're almost always reading the Bible in terms of me and my, when a lot of times the Bible most often talks in terms of us and our. Even the Lord's Prayer is actually begins how? My Father. No, it actually begins our Father. I read uh, one author who was working through the way Paul talks about his relationship with God, and he notes that when Paul uses the word my with the word Lord in his letter, he, he writes my Lord once, but he writes our Lord, plural, 53 times. When Paul thought about the Christian faith, he apparently thought, in terms of us and Jesus, even more often than he thought simply about me and Jesus. And obviously, they're both there, me and Jesus and us and Jesus. Don't get me wrong. But the point is, us and Jesus doesn't always get as much attention in our pulpits and in our hearts as it does in the Bible. And the fact is, this individualistic thinking can even impact the way we think about the gospel. So, for example, if you were trying to describe to someone... uh, the recipient of the great benefits of the gospel, uh, because obviously what Jesus did has an intended recipient. There's someone who's supposed to benefit from it. Many of us would describe the recipient of the gospel in very individual terms and stop there. And so we might say something like, Jesus died and rose again so that I might be forgiven of my sins and I might enter into a new relationship with him, which is so true and, and awesome. And important, vitally important. But the ultimate purpose is even bigger than just God glorifying himself by saving you individually. Ephesians, last week we saw this, it's God glorifying himself by saving a people and making you part of a new community, the church. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's trying to help us appreciate how great the power of God is that's at work in us. And the first example, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you know this right? We were dead in our transgressions and sins, but he made us alive. And even there, Paul uses we, but he's definitely describing our individual salvation. And he's talking about what God has done in our lives as individuals. And yet he doesn't stop there. In the second half of the chapter, chapter two, he goes on to demonstrate how God puts his power on display by making us a new community. And he says, The reason he does this, chapter 3, is because this is one of the ways he's seeking to show his wisdom to supernatural beings. And so the gospel is not just good news about how you get saved. It's good news about how God is glorifying himself by keeping his promises and sending Jesus as the rescuer and ruler that he promised all throughout the Old Testament and how Jesus lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we deserved to die and rose again, defeating sin and death, and he ascended to heaven where he sits at God's right hand as the first fruits of the new creation that's coming when he returns to, to bring forgiven sinners who have put their faith in him and who he has united into one body to live together forever under his gracious rule. And of course, a key word there is united and together. The the gospel is about what God is doing for you, but the gospel is about how he's glorifying himself through the church. There's someone who's described the gospel as being like a three-legged stool. So you have the gospel story, And that's the big picture of the Bible that helps you put everything in context of creation, of the fall, of redemption, of restoration. And then you have the gospel announcement, and that's the good news about Jesus and his work 
and his person. And then you have gospel community as God enables men and women to respond with repentance and faith to the gospel announcement. He gives birth to the church, the gospel community. And the point is that it's very hard to understand the gospel announcement about Jesus without understanding the gospel story and without appreciating how it produces the gospel community. Because when you're saved, you're joined to other believers. You go from simply being an I to a we. That's reality. And the connection that you have with other believers is actually so tight that Paul amps it up and moves past simply saying that we're family to describing believers as being part of one body. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Creeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so the body, there in 1 Corinthians, is Christ, but we have been united to Christ, and this new relationship with Christ has implications for our relationship with one another. Because we're united to Christ, we have a very real union with one another. And so just as none of us as individuals can be saved without being united to Christ, we can't be saved without God uniting us to one another. To become a Christian is to be baptized into one body. And of course, you remember that's why last week when Paul talks about walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, Ephesians chapter 4.1, he talks about what? He's just described this great work that God's done in Ephesians 1 through 3. He says, you need to walk, we need to walk in a manner worthy of that. And how does he think that will look? He talks about being eager to maintain the unity of the spirit by the bond of peace. That's why this is such a big deal. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body and one spirit. And so we have to think family to read our Bibles, to appreciate the gospel, and even just to understand what the Bible teaches about spiritual growth. Because how do you grow if you're thinking... I need to grow spiritually this next year. How do you grow? How do you grow? Sometimes when we think spiritual growth, we think mostly about me and God. So me at home reading my Bible, me praying, me doing this and that, which is definitely important. If you're going to grow in holiness, it's going to require you make a personal effort to be spiritually disciplined. Paul says, train yourself for godliness. So you need to take personal responsibility, and yet that's not all there is to how God goes about changing you and growing you, like just you there by yourself. It's not the same as training to run a marathon where a group is optional. I mean, even if you turn back to that passage we looked at last week, Ephesians 4, we'll be there for a minute now, but you remember how Paul talks about this process by which we become spiritually mature. He says, this is what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Then he says, this is why it's so important, verses 4 to 6. And then he talks about why, or, or he talks about how we become that. How in the world can we become these people who are united and who are walking in a manner worthy of the gospel? And when he talks about how that happens, he talks about, the gifts that God has given us as a church, specifically in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, he talks about the grace that was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he talks in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 about these specific gifts of teachers who teach God's word. And then he talks about the goal in Ephesians 4, 13. He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he says, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children. And then he says, verse 15, middle of verse 15, we are to grow up. So Paul's talking here about how we become who we are. How do we grow up? And in this passage, he's describing this process. And you know what he shows is God's normal process for growing? It is these relationships in the local church. It's not just you sitting there by yourself. According to Paul, it's this family that God's given you. And Paul proves that by taking us back to what Jesus has done in verse 7 and saying that Jesus' plan for changing you was to spread the grace we need as a church 
out so that we can be growing together. He gives each grace, each one grace, Paul says, to use in the lives of one another so we can mature. And then verse 10, he says, because he knows we need help learning how to use those gifts to do that, he explains he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and, and teachers, and, and he gave these offices as gifts to the church to, this is the purpose, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And again, I'm just saying there's an order here to how growing is supposed to normally work. Because God could have brought you to spiritual maturity all by himself. If that was his plan, he could literally send down like a spiritual uh, lightning bolt one day while you're walking down the street and then zap your hit and suddenly you're taken to the next level spiritually. But that's not the way he himself said that it's normally going to work. Instead, Paul tells us God wants to use his people in this whole process of making us grow. And so like we saw, he's given the grace we need to other believers. And because he knows we're not automatically going to know how to best use those gifts, he's decided to raise up certain men who, and equip them with gifts that, that we need to learn so that we can use our gifts that he's given us so that we can help each other grow. And I'm just saying that's the normal way we move forward spiritually, community, family. If we think we're going to move forward spiritually all by ourselves, we're going to miss how the Bible teaches spiritual growth works. And the thing is, we need to grow spiritually, verse 13, because Jesus has a goal for us. He, he wants us to be built up to attain to the unity of the faith. Even if you look at verse 13, you see there again, who is it that needs building up? It's us, not just you. There's a we. This is us being built up. This is not just about my own personal spiritual growth. We're a body. And so in Paul's mind, to think about your own spiritual growth apart from other believers is kind of missing the whole point. Even in a body, if my right arm is getting strong and the, the rest of my body isn't, my right arm doesn't say to itself, that's an, enough, I'm happy, at least I'm strong. Now, the kind of spiritual growth we should be concerned about happens individually, but is also community growth as well. But at the same time, again, it's not only that we, grow, we need the community to grow spiritually, or we are to grow spiritually as a community, it's also that we, through the community, grow spiritually. Paul writes, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And basically he's saying, what would happen if Jesus came and died and rose again and didn't give gifts to the church and make us family? We'd be stuck in spiritual infancy because he gave us these gifts so that we wouldn't be spiritual children. Rather, instead, verse 15, his plan for us is to grow Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And how? Paul says, verse 16, if you look at the end, as the body builds itself up in love. So the, the body's at work building itself up, and yet even that goes back to Jesus because it's Jesus who makes the body grow. Verse 16, again, the beginning. From whom the whole body, that is Jesus, joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So Jesus makes the body grow. But how? We grow when the church is functioning the way it should. And what does that look like specifically? Each work each part working properly? Verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. And who's speaking the truth in love here? Preachers? That's our instinct. And of course, preachers are important. It all starts with right teaching for sure. But it doesn't end there because it's not just me or the other teachers of the church teaching and you kind of sitting there listening. In Paul's mind, you need to be receiving the word and changing as a result of what you get from the word and then using your gifts by developing relationships with one another in the church that are characterized by love and truth because that's how God makes us grow. Not simply by us having a, a building, not simply by us getting together every week, not simply by having different programs that we put on, not simply by having great singing, but through mature Godly relationships that are characterized by love and truth. Us living like family is important because we are family. 
But it's hard because we think so individualistically, and yet we have to work on thinking differently to understand the Bible, to appreciate the gospel, to grow spiritually, to grow spiritually. Paul Tripp writes, What God has ordained for his church is both wonderful and sobering. It's wonderful because he's a jealous and determined God. His work in his people will not fail, but he will continue until it's completed. It's sobering because this work follows an all-of-my-people, all-of-the-time model. Listen to this. Many of us would be relieved if God had placed our sanctification in the hands of trained and paid professionals. But that is simply not the biblical model. God's plan is that through the faithful ministry of every part, the whole body will grow into full maturity in Christ. The leaders of his church have been gifted, positioned, and appointed to train and mobilize the people of God for this every person, every day ministry lifestyle. There's a sense in which you could say sanctification is a community project. Again, Paul Tripp writes, Relationship, community, is at the very heart of Christianity. We're not just forgiven. We're welcomed into God's family. We're invited into an intimate personal communion with the creator, savior, king. It's only in communion with him that we're able to be whole. In community with him, we find wisdom, truth, hope, forgiveness, grace, peace, reconciliation, strength, and righteousness. And as we're welcomed into communion with him, we are called to community with one another. This community is one of his primary instruments of radical personal growth. He calls us to a lifestyle of mutual service. He calls us to love one another as he loved us. He calls us to confess, to teach, to restore, to forgive, to love, to encourage, to confront, to give, to sacrifice, to rescue, to protect, and to serve. And he warns us, this is the bold print, he warns us that this community is not a luxury for a few but is essential for each one of us. He calls us to live as, as if we actually believe that our walk with him is a community project. And the reason I'm stressing this is because we don't just want to do church. We want as best as we can for our church to match the picture we find in the Bible. And, and one of the primary pictures, this is so simple today, I know, but one of the primary pictures is, is family. So when we think about what do we need to focus on if we're going to produce eternally lasting fruit, we need to focus on forming spiritually intentional family-like relationships with one another as first priority. And yet, of course, that's hard for a lot of reasons. If we think that's something that's going to come naturally, probably not. There are going to be uh, changes uh, that are necessary even to our, our culture, to our way of life, to our walk. So how? How do, you how do we change our culture? I think first we just praise God here at Cornerstone that he has changed us and is changing us. And honestly, so many of these changes have happened. It's obvious the love this church has for one another. And so we want to, like 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we want to keep pursuing that and, and growing in our ability to love one another as family. And that's also one reason we're beginning these life groups that we've been talking about. This is a, a structure that we're putting in place to help you live out the New Testament picture of the church, basically. We want to find a way to help us share life throughout the week. And, and the way we want to do that is not through some big program or event, but just by having these groups where we open up our homes and we eat meals together and we practice the one another's. It's funny because I, I know it sounds so simple, and it, it's going to feel pretty simple, I think. But you open up the gospel, for example, and you look at the ministry of Jesus, and, and you know one thing you see him doing a lot? Eating with people. In fact, Tim, Tim Chester writes, when we get back to Luke, we'll see this, but he writes, how would you complete the sentence, the Son of Man came? The Son of Man came preaching the word? Son of man came to establish the kingdom of God. The son of man came to die on the cross. There are three ways the New Testament completes the sentence, the son of man came. Mark 10, 45, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19, 10. The son of man has come eating and drinking, Luke 7, 34. 
And so the first two are statements of purpose. Why did Jesus come? He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom. The third is more a statement of method. How did Jesus come? He came eating and drinking. He did evangelism and discipleship around a table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of something to drink. And that's essentially what we're seeking to do with life groups. In this fast-paced, tech-saturated, attention-deficit-disordered, individualistic, comfort-loving culture in which we live, we're trying to find a way to develop a new way of living and relating to other believers because the Bible tells us we're family and because so much of our spiritual growth and witness in this world is connected to us living like a family. And so we're starting this year by just trying to practice the spiritual discipline of table fellowship. And we know life is busy, so we're wanting to help you put on your calendar this next year about two times a month where you're going to have the opportunity to get together with other Christians and eat together and talk and just try to grow as family. But ultimately, of course, that plan will only work if we understand why it's important we live as family, even when it's uncomfortable and doesn't feel normal at first, because it's not the structure that ultimately changes our culture. It's God who changes us as we understand the gospel and what he has done in and through and for the church. So we're family. That was, the, that was this, the message today from the Bible. We're family. It's hard to live like family because we've got all these habits that go against really living like family. And we're going to seek to live like family this next year by relying on the Holy Spirit to change us and also by taking some time throughout the week, to spend slow, slower time with one another in homes, loving each other like brothers and sisters, the brothers and sisters that we are. Thanks, guys. Let's pray. Lord, I know this was a little different today, and um, we're looking forward to the next weeks where we get back to just one passage and walk our way through it. So, But yet this is the truth, Lord. This is a big picture, big look at what you've done for us as a church. And so we just want to say thank you, first of all, that you didn't save us and make us live our lives by ourselves. You've actually united us to Christ and you've united us to each other. But we also want to say help because uh, there are parts of living as a family that we like and there are a lot of other parts of living as a family that we don't like because it's not comfortable, it's messy, it's complicated. And so, uh, Lord, we would kind of rather pick and choose, like take the benefits of family and, and skip out on the responsibilities of family. Uh, but we pray, Lord, that you would change us, and change us for our own spiritual growth, but also change us, continue to change us. Thank you for what you've done, but continue to change us for our witness so that uh, the world would be able to look at the way we live and know that we're your followers uh, by the love that we have for one another, that it really would be something unusual, the way we love one another, that we don't love each other simply as nice coworkers, or love each other as really good friends, but that we love each other uh, like family. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.